Our God and Father, Lord, we rejoice at the very thought of you today. God, we praise you, and we lift you up, and we exalt you. And we have gathered in this place to sing the high praises of your name, to give you glory and honor, to worship you, to value you publicly, and to express our great love and appreciation to you for your gracious gift of life and for your gracious gift of salvation to those of us who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. We thank you that you have sent your spirit to live in our hearts, that, God, you might dwell among us, that you might be with us, that your presence might be with us continually, moment by moment, forever and ever, world without end. Lord, we thank you for the great hope that we have of your soon coming kingdom. And God, we eagerly look forward to that day. We are so encouraged to know that you will be coming. You will be taking us to be with you forever, that you will glorify our bodies so that we shall become immortal and never die again. We eagerly, with great hope and anticipation, look forward to being with you in your glorious new heavens and earth, God, as your presence even comes to live upon the earth. Oh, Lord, we look so uh, forward to that kingdom of righteousness where there will be no sin, no more mourning or dying or crying or pain. Father, we look to that day with eager anticipation, and with it we say, come quickly, Lord, please, come quickly. The day is evil, and God, your saints are under tremendous persecution in this day. And Lord, we just pray that you would bring these events to pass quickly, that we might be with you forever. We ask that today as we look into these very profound scriptures that you would help us to understand just a little bit better what your second coming will be like and the things that are transpiring at that point in history. We thank you for the privilege that we have to freely gather in this place and proclaim your word. Um, we are grateful for all that you have said to us, and so now we carefully study it. We honor you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, a few things before we get started into our lesson. Last time we met, I had a brother come up to me after the class, and <clears throat> he had some questions for me, and he one of the things he said to me was, well, you're equivocating. You're, you're going back and forth. You're seesawing. You, you uh, seem to not be really clear about what you mean. And, of course, he was talking about in regard to pre-tribulationism and post-tribulationism. And as I began to talk to him, it became clear that he did not understand that I'm not a pre-tribber. And so in his mind, as I was talking about pre-tribulation rapture and explaining some things because of a question that another brother had asked during the course of the class. And then I would go back and say, well, this is, you know, not the way I see it. And, and so, if you will, he thought I was, you know, uh, somewhat confused about all of that. So I want to clear that up this morning and officially come out of the closet. <laughs> 
you know, it's not easy to just explain your whole position on eschatology and even in one class, much, much less. And, you know, so that's, I guess, why I haven't really, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping that through the course of this text and, and then when we get to the end of the book of First Thessalonians, which I'm hoping is going to be in about three weeks, then I'm going to spend three more weeks talking about uh, eschatology in general, at which time I'm going to give you a vehement defense for my position, okay, on this stuff here. So I, I, I don't mean to be avoiding that, except that, that that's not really the context of, 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 of this. I mean, we are talking about those events, especially here in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. Today will be the day that I'll talk about it more than any other because we're looking specifically at verse 16 and 17, which deals with the resurrection of the dead and the rapture of the living saints. But um, it it just, in the context of going through the the verses expositorily, I'm really not uh, given to bringing in all these other biblical defenses of my position. However, I intend to do that for you, okay? But just so that you understand where I'm coming from, I'm going to try to make it crystal clear in just a few minutes, okay? I'm, I'm not a pre-tribber, okay? And so I, I have been trying to represent the pre-trib position as accurately as I can. Those who hold that position, I have tremendous respect for. As a matter of fact, my most respected Bible teachers are pre-tribbers, okay? But I'm not. And so as you see me going through this text, specifically dealing with the second coming and the rapture, I am coming at it from a post-tribulational perspective, okay? And just real briefly, the reasons for that is, going back to verse 15, 1 Thessalonians 4.15, there Paul says, according to the Lord's own word, and as I taught through that, I presented you this text comparison chart. Do you remember that? This right here, there's one of these on the back table if you need it. But it compares the, 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 uh, the elements of Jesus' Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 with the elements of the passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. And what I'm saying is when Paul says, according to the Lord's own word, in my view, he's quoting from the Olivet Discourse. Not verbatim, but if you will, he's paraphrasing from his knowledge of that section of text. Okay? So, that right there is the key point why I'm not a pre-tribber. Because I believe when you read 1 Thessalonians 4:15 through 17, you are reading about the second coming of Christ, which is the same event as Matthew 24, 29 through 31, and Mark 13, 24 through 27. Okay? So I'm saying that 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, and 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 54, which talks about the resurrection of the living saints, uh, sorry, the translation of the living saints, um, is the same event as Matthew 24, 29 through 31, and Mark 13, 24 through 27. So, in my mind, when I'm reading 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, there Paul is describing the second coming of Christ, the parousia that he's been mentioning throughout the whole letter, of which now he's going to give a vivid description of. 
when he describes the parousia to us, the coming of Christ, he says that there will be a resurrection of the dead and a rapture of living saints. So in my view, the resurrection and the rapture happen at the same time as the second coming, which is after the tribulation period, specifically in these two passages. So when Jesus was teaching through the Olivet Discourse, he told us there's going to be a great tribulation period, but he says in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon won't shine and the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory and with a great trumpet. And he will send forth his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, he says in, in Mark. Okay? And so when Christ comes again, after the tribulation period, in my view, he's going to resurrect the dead in Christ and he's going to rapture the living church at that point in time. In my view, it's the same event, okay? That's why I'm not a pre-tribber. I don't see, and so let me uh, just quickly, I don't see anywhere in Scripture a pre-tribulation rapture. I don't see a passage in Scripture that says to us or indicates to us that the resurrection of the dead in Christ and the rapture happens before the tribulation period. I don't see that. That verse of Scripture doesn't show up for me. And I've studied it for years and years and years, and I'm convinced that it is post-trib. Um, <clears throat> but furthermore, um, uh, instead, I see them as the same event. So when you're reading in the Olivet Discourse, in my mind, when you're reading in the Olivet Discourse and Jesus says, this is going to happen, then that's going to happen, and this is going to happen, and immediately after that, this is going to happen. Then when he gets to the second coming, he includes this event that's called the rapture. And, of course, I explained that last week, and uh, at the bottom of page uh, 46 on your handouts, uh, I'm, I'm basically explaining the text comparison between 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, and the passages in Mark 13 and Matthew 24. So, just real briefly, there are some other reasons that are very primary to me why I'm not a pre-tribber. And one of them has to do with the book of 2 Thessalonians. If you have your Bible, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 to me, is the most convincing scripture in all of the New Testament that the rapture is a post-tribulational rapture. Okay? 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 3. He says there, Now we request of you, brethren, with regard to what? The coming of our Lord, the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together with him. All right? Now what's he talking about? In my mind, he's talking about what he's talked about in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, which is what? The parousia. At which time, what happens? The resurrection of the dead in Christ and the rapture of the living saints. He says, concerning that, okay, 
verse 2, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now here again, he equates that coming with the day of the Lord, just like he did in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through chapter 5, verse 3, or 5, verse 4. He says here, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. What will not come? The day of the Lord, which is what? The coming of our Lord and our being gathered to him. Verse 1. He says, it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, who's that? Okay, so what is Paul saying? Well, in my view, it's very clear. He's saying. The second coming and our being gathered to him is not going to come until there is an apostasy or a falling away, which Jesus spoke of in the Olivet Discourse, and the revelation of the Antichrist, around whose uh, appearance is the Great Tribulation period. So, again, if you read the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is saying, that the man of lawlessness is going to arise, right? And he says, at that time, there will be a time of great tribulation such as not happened from the beginning of nations until that time, nor ever shall be. That unless those days were cut short, no flesh would survive. Okay? And of course, if you read about the Antichrist in Daniel's prophecies, um, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 11 and 12, Or if you read about the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 13 and 14, okay, you see the astounding devastation that he causes, okay? Particularly that he is vehemently persecuting and killing Christians and persecuting the church, okay? So in these verses, Paul is saying that that second coming and that rapture isn't going to happen until what? until the apostasy comes and the man of lawlessness be revealed. So that you understand how I have arrived at my position, those are really the main issues, okay? One other thing I want to point out, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, this is more Pauline eschatology, if you will. There are some very interesting statements that are made, verses 22 and following. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 and following. Paul says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Look at verse 23. He says, okay, now he's talking about everybody in Christ being made alive. What's he talking about? Resurrection of the dead. The whole context of 1 Corinthians 15 is about the resurrection of the dead, the entire chapter. Okay, well, this is right smack dab in the middle of it. And he's talking about those who are in Christ being made alive. Look what he says, verse 23. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, right? So Jesus was made alive at his resurrection, right? Then what? After that, those who are Christ's, when? At his coming. Do you see that? When will Christ's people be made alive? At his coming. When is that? First Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. When the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a loud command. 
with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That, when does that happen? That is coming. Okay? Which I'm saying Jesus taught very clearly in the Olivet Discourse. Okay? So that's how I uh, uh, come to my, my thinking in general. Okay? So again... Uh, that was five or six minutes of me telling you how I got to where I'm at, okay? I'm not giving you a vehement defense here. I'm not presenting all the scriptures for why I'm not a pre-tribber, but I just summed it up for you, okay? So now I'm officially out of the closet, okay? Um, and I, I promise if I have breath and the Lord is willing, I will give you a much more detailed overview with charts and everything about why I hold that position and I bring in a whole lot more biblical evidence, okay? Then on top of that, today's lesson is really going to kind of focus in on these verses 16 and 17, which, if you will, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 talks about the resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 talks about the rapture, okay? And so there'll probably be some more reasons for my position wrapped up in today's lesson, but then we're going to move on, okay? And we're going to we're going to try to finish the the, the the whole of chapter five in the next two to three weeks. All right. So with that, then um, getting to the text, First Thessalonians four fifteen through seventeen, you remember that Paul was saying in verse fifteen, he was talking about those who are asleep. Right? Remember that discussion. And he said there, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he's saying, look, we're not like those who don't have any hope, right? Our dead, those who are dead in Christ, we have great hope that we're going to be reunited with them, right? And in verse 15, he equates that with the coming of the Lord. He says this is going to happen at the parousia, verse 15. He, he brings up the fact that um, at the parousia, right, uh, we living saints won't what? Precede those who have fallen asleep. Now he's going to start talking about some chronology. He's going to start saying what happens first and what happens second and so on and so forth. Okay? So in verse 15... He brings up the coming of the Lord, and he brings up the resurrection of believers. And then in verse 16, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Okay, so here is this monumental statement. Okay, he is saying that all who are dead in Christ are going to be raised from the dead. He is talking about when the resurrection of the dead is going to take place. When is it going to take place? When the Lord himself descends from heaven with his mighty angels. That's when. Okay? And, and when that happens, the dead in Christ are going to rise first. They're certainly not going to precede us who are living, right? However, verse 17, then if you will, or after that, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. 
Okay, so uh, if you will, now he brings up what we call the rapture. And, of course, you realize, as we kind of went over last week, that uh, uh, the, the term rapture is the English word for the Latin word rapio, okay, <laughs> which is actually a translation of the Greek word harpazo, which is in the text. The, this First Thessalonians was written in Greek, right? And in Greek, the term that we read here as caught up is the term harpazo. Okay, so where do we get the word rapture? Well, here's where we get the word. The Latin text actually reads rapio. Okay, and so we have this English word that, if you will, is very similar called the rapture, and that's why this event gets referred to as the rapture. Okay, so what is the rapture? Well, the rapture, if you will, is something very simple. Don't try to tie a whole bunch of stuff to it, okay? It's just this one thing. It is living believers being transformed from their mortal state to their immortal state at the second coming of Christ when they meet the Lord in the air with those whom Christ has just resurrected from the dead, the dead in Christ. So, again, what is the rapture? It's the translation of living saints from being mortal to being immortal. Okay? And that is described in some detail in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 54. Okay? That's what the rapture is. It's simply the translation of living saints. It is happening at the same time, or if you will, just after the resurrection of the dead. Okay? The resurrection of the righteous dead, okay, which is what we're going to talk about today. Today we're going to talk about the resurrection of the dead because we're going to focus in on verse 16 and 17. And uh, with that, we'll start there on your lesson on page 49. And there Paul says in verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Here Christ's first order of business at his coming is the gathering of his people, and this is done through the resurrection of dead saints and the translation of living saints to meet the Lord in the air. Here is what Paul was describing in verse 15, the dead in Christ will rise first and not precede we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. Note the order of events. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. Don't miss these very key words and the significance of them. The dead in Christ will rise. You know, we often think about the rapture and we think, wow, man, it's this, you know, just this killer place in Scripture where the most amazing thing happens, you know? And we kind of have all this emphasis on verse 17. We who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. right? And we miss the significance of these words. The dead in Christ will rise. You understand how magnanimous that is? We're talking about right? the whole of the righteous dead previous from that time being raised from the dead and caught up to be with the Lord in the air. Okay? 
This coupled with what I was telling you last week, the return of Christ is what? Personal, bodily, visible. Here's Jesus in the sky. And all the nations of the earth are mourning before him. And all the company of the great host of the righteous from all ages, Christ raises them from the dead to meet him in the air. Let me tell you, the wicked are going to have something to mourn about. Are you with me? And it's at that time that this great resurrection from the dead happens. Okay, this is a big deal. Remember how I was telling you last week? <laughs> this is the biggest deal. Amen? Amen? So, it's my opinion that the dead in Christ that are uh, resurrected from the dead at that point are a great throng larger than we who are alive and remain. Although I think that that is also a great throng. <laughs> I don't think it compares to the dead in Christ. I think that is a huge and magnanimous thing that we shouldn't just read over. This is a massive thing that takes place. Okay? The dead in Christ will rise. So, <clears throat> it is very significant here that the resurrection of the dead takes place at the second coming. This resurrection must be understood in light of the whole context of Scripture in its teaching on the resurrection of the dead, for the resurrection of the dead is mentioned in many places in Scripture. There were miraculous healings of dead people who were raised by prophets in the Old Testament, apostles in the New Testament, and by our Lord himself. And I give you a list of Scripture references there for places where people were raised from the dead, either by the prophets, by the apostles, or by Jesus himself. Uh, of course, the most significant resurrection is that of our Lord himself after his crucifixion, death, and burial. And so, for example, we have a record in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 2 and following. There Paul writes, he said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So there is an account of the resurrection of Jesus. And if you will, there were more than 500 eyewitnesses uh, of the resurrection of Jesus, not to mention the writers of the New Testament and the apostles, okay? They were all eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ from the dead. They were all witnesses to his death. They were witnesses to his burial. And they were witnesses to his resurrection. And uh, so, if you will, this idea of the resurrection of the dead, it's not just something that is uh, um, happening, if you will, at the end of the age. It's, it's spoken of throughout Scripture, okay? But <clears throat> the idea is that even though we may have seen some people raised from the dead here and there as a manifestation of God's glory and power in different places with the prophets, with, uh, you know, for example, um, Elisha and Elijah raising people from the dead, or if you will, uh, Paul. Right? You, you, know, the guy, guy, you know the guy that falls asleep during the sermon? Yeah. 
<laughs> it's dangerous practice, by the way. <laughs> right. So there's places, you know, in Scripture where people are raised from the dead. But this, family, this is a resurrection of all of the righteous dead from all the ages. Okay? So of this resurrection of the dead, there is replete references throughout the Old and New Testament about this event coming to pass at some point in history, okay? And so, if you will, though, the scripture talks about two main and general resurrections, and that's what I want to address here. There are many resurrections of dead people in scripture, but the hope of a general resurrection of all people is a clear teaching in scripture. This appears in the Old Testament. So, for example, the Old Testament speaks about a general resurrection, okay? Here are some examples. Job 19, verse 26 and following. Job says, Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. What did he just say? He said, after my skin is destroyed. What's he talking about? After I've died, right? Yet from my flesh I shall see God. What's he saying? My body's going to be resurrected and I'm going to see the Lord after my death. That's what Job is saying. Okay, he goes on. Whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes shall see and not another, my heart faints within me. And so he's saying, I am going to see. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives and in the end, right, I shall stand in his presence, right? How about Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19 and following? There Isaiah writes, he says, Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Come, my people, enter your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. For behold, the Lord is going to come out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. There, Isaiah is talking about the resurrection of the dead. The earth, he says, will give birth to the departed spirits. Their corpses will rise. The dead will live. Or how about Ezekiel, chapter 37, verses 12 and following. Ezekiel writes, and he says, Therefore prophesy and say unto them. Now, this is the valley of dry bones vision, right? And um, he says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves. My people and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. And there again, is an obvious reference to the resurrection of the dead in the Old Testament. But, of course, it also appears in the New Testament. So, for example, Mark 12, verse 24 and following, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, speaking to the Sadducees there, that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. And so he was there contradicting the Sadducees who were saying there is no resurrection from the dead. 
So here, an obvious, clear teaching from the Lord Jesus that there is going to be a resurrection from the dead. Why? Because God is the God of the living. Amen? First uh, <clears throat> Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 and following. There, Paul writes, and he says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, and when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. And so there he talks about all who are in Christ being made alive. Okay? Or in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 and following, he says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Amen? Listen, the dead are going to rise. Amen? And when the righteous dead arise, they shall be immortal and imperishable. That's what the scripture says. You understand? Immortal cannot die. Will never die. Okay? Thus, eternal life comes to its ultimate fruition. Amen? Hebrews 6, and verse 1 and following, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. So here he's going to talk about some basic biblical Christian doctrines, right? What's he say? Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. You see, in the writer to the Hebrews' mind, right, these were basic Christian doctrines of which we're going to move on into some more uh, mature things, right? And there he mentions the resurrection of the dead, as if we should all know that that's a very fundamental principle in Christianity. Amen? And then again in Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and following, there John writes, Um, and describing things that are happening at the second coming of Christ, he says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And what? They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Now, if there's a first resurrection, what does that imply? There's at least a second, right? Well, he just said right here that these came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And what? The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. 
Okay, so he's saying there's going to be another rest of the dead coming to life a thousand years later. Correct? Is that how you read that? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> so verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So then, in fact, there are two resurrections that are spoken of in Scripture which have yet to happen in the course of history and are clearly taught as separate events. They are referred to as the resurrection unto life for the righteous and the resurrection unto judgment or contempt for the wicked. There's two resurrections. And these two resurrections are spoken of in several places in Scripture, many of which I just read, read to you. Now, some are just talking about a general resurrection, and they don't necessarily distinguish between the two. Okay? However, we just saw a verse of Scripture that said that those two were separated by what? A thousand years. Okay, so when we get some more insight from other places in Scripture, we learn more detail about that, those resurrections. Are you with me? Okay, so then, for example, Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and following. There he writes and he says, Now at that time Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now here in the course of Daniel, he's writing and he speaks of a resurrection. Now, if you just read Daniel for what it says in its context, it seems like there's one resurrection. Would you agree? However, when we get additional insight into that from the passage in Revelation, what do we learn? That those two events are separated by a thousand years. Well, this place in Daniel isn't the only place in Scripture where it appears that it's only one resurrection. There's another passage in John chapter 5, verses 28 and following. There Jesus is speaking, and he says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Okay. Now, if you will, he's just saying there's going to be a resurrection, and the righteous and the wicked are going to be dealt with in different ways. But he doesn't necessarily say these are going to happen at different times. Would you agree? However, he does talk about these two different components, right? He says that uh, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment, okay? Well, then also in the course of the book of Acts, Luke writes, and he says there, but this I admit to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law, and that which is written in the prophets, these are actually the words of Paul that uh, Luke is recording. And verse 15, he says, Having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Okay? Now this is Paul. and He's telling, um, I don't know if it's King Agrippa or Festus or someone here. He's saying, he's saying, look, 
I believe just like they do that there's going to be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. God is going to judge the world. He's going to judge all the nations in righteousness. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. right? He's going to separate the righteous from the wicked. And he's going to do that at a resurrection. That even though everybody has lived and died, there's going to come a day when God is going to raise everybody up out of their graves and judge them all. Right? For it is appointed for a man to die once and then the judgment. Well, these resurrections are separated by a period of 1,000 years and clearly taught as separate events. So even though these three scriptures we looked at here did not necessarily tell us that those two uh, resurrections were separated, when John gives us a more vivid description of what's happening, we find out that those two resurrections are separated by a thousand years. Let's look a little closer at that. Uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and following. There at the end of verse 4, he says that they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Who is the they? They are the ones who uh, had not worshipped the beast or received his mark upon their forehead or their hand, right? They are, if you will, those who have endured the time of great persecution under the Antichrist. And uh, here it says, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, the verse 5 says this, the rest of the dead, okay, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Now, what is he saying? He's saying there's going to be another resurrection. Here is this resurrection, specifically of these who endured uh, the great tribulation period, the persecution of the Antichrist, didn't take the mark of the beast, and they were killed for it. Okay? Um, Now, in my view, this is obviously the same resurrection that happens in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. Why do I say that? Because he goes on to say, at the end of verse 5, this is the first resurrection. You understand? In other words, there wasn't the resurrection before this of the whole host of the company of the dead in Christ, and then there's this other little resurrection that happens afterward, okay? But here he's describing events that take place at the second coming of Christ. When Jesus comes again and establishes his throne physically upon the earth in Jerusalem, What's happening here is a resurrection. The Bible calls it the first resurrection. And this is what it says about that. It says, Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, what's being said here? What's being said is everybody who partakes in the first resurrection, guess what? They're never going to die again. Over them, the second death has no power. One might say, well, what is the second death? Well, let's read on. Um, Skipping down to verse 11 through 15, what what happens between verse 6 and verse 11 is the millennial kingdom, okay? And the final rebellion of nations. And Christ um, uh, overcoming the rebellious nations at the end of that time. And then right after that, is the consummation of the ages and what we call the great white throne judgment, which is uh, mentioned in verse 11 and following. And there we read, 
And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Okay, so what is the second death? The lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, now what is this? This is the second resurrection. This is the resurrection where all the wicked dead of all the ages are raised up for judgment before God. Okay, are you with me? Is that confusing at all? Does anybody have a question here? No? Is really that clear? Mark. I think that's clearly implied. I think it's clearly implied that there will be people at this second resurrection whose name is found written in the book of life and who will live forever. Okay. Well, so, what's confusing to me is that you're saying that and then you're calling it the wicked. Mm-hmm. Right. So in my mind, uh, you have a thousand years that passes by from the time that Jesus establishes his kingdom on the earth until this time. And, and we're not saying that there is no one that lives during that millennial period that is saved, who dies, and at some point in history must be raised again. Because those nations that are living in the millennial kingdom are not immortal. Even though I believe the immortal church is there, ruling and reigning with Christ as priests of God. Okay, the nations are still there. They are mortal. And I do believe that there is a gospel that is preached by which people can be saved in that time period. Yeah. So what happens with them? Okay. So if you will, uh, of course, there's a lot of controversy about these things because the, the, the most of the detail that we get on these things happens between Revelation verse 20, verse 1 and verse 15. It's all right there. And that's all the info we get. However, when, if you will, when you read the, like the verses that you brought up, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It certainly does not say that everybody who's judged there is going to be thrown in the lake of fire. It doesn't say that. And so in my mind, it's implying by that that there will actually be people there whose name is found written in the book of life who will live, namely people who are mortals alive after the second coming of Christ during the millennial <coughs> kingdom. Did I confuse everybody with that? Okay. There's also the forms of believers that are with Christ and received our new bodies. There will be no death. Right. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Right? Over them, the second death has no power. In other words, the lake of fire. You'll, you won't wind up there if you take part in the first resurrection. And this is what Paul said. He said, look, we who are alive and remain are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And what? So shall we be with the Lord forever. Right? When we are raised, we're going to be raised what? 
imperishable and immortal. You have to understand this great hope that we have, family. <laughs> okay? Uh, when Christ comes and resurrects us from the dead or translates us if we are alive and remaining, okay, we will never, ever see death again. We are going to be changed. We are going to become immortal, okay? Listen, if you get caught up in the rapture, you're never going to die. Why? Because you're Christ's. If you get raised from the dead at the resurrection, the first resurrection at the second coming of Christ, you will never die. You will become imperishable and immortal and never again be subject to sin. Okay? That's our great hope. And not only that, that's our strong confidence. Amen? But I want to say there's a greater confidence than that. It's a confidence that you have now that you are the elect people of God. God has from all eternity decided to set his love upon you. And because of that fact, you shall never die. Amen. You understand? That is a stronger confidence in my mind. The fact that the Holy Spirit of God lives in me is a testimony to me that I have been set apart by God for eternal life. Are you with me? I am never going to die. Why? Because God, according to God's will and God's plan, has decided to save me. He snatched me out of the fire. And none can snatch me out of his hand. Amen. Are you with me? Amen. Let me tell you, the strong confidence we have is that Jesus is the good shepherd. And of all that the Father gives me, I shall lose none, but shall raise him up at the last day. Are you with me? Family, let me tell you, don't fear, okay? Listen, listen, we have nothing to fear. Death has been overcome. Where, oh, death is your victory. Where is your sting? Christ's people have been set free from sin and death, and they will live forever in the presence of God, world without end. Eons upon eons upon eons upon eons will pass, and it will seem like merely a day to us. Are you with me? And during that whole time, it will be nothing but glory and love and fellowship with the saints and the glory of Jesus right before our eyes. Every vision we see of his glorious face will send our hearts away in rapture. Are you with me? All the capacities of the human uh, 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 experience, God will fulfill with just pouring out his kindness upon us, age to age, eon upon eon, the kindness, the riches of God's grace in Christ being poured out upon us world without end. That's what Ephesians 2, 7 says. Family, let me tell you, we have got a great hope, okay? And it's going to be realized fully, you're going to be glorified, okay? Listen, when Christ comes again to take you to be with him, okay? So shall we ever be with the Lord, amen? Joyce, what were you going to say there? Well, I'm just really glad that you're saying things. Um, so the second resurrection isn't necessarily the same thing as the second death. I mean, the second death, no. as far as terms. No, the second death, okay? The, the, the second death is this. We all live and die. 
okay, as mortals. We all live and die. The only people who won't live and die are people that get raptured, right? Uh, Elijah is one. Enoch is one. Uh, there's some more, aren't there? No, I guess that's it. So, but beside the point, okay? And those all, all of us all have a what? A first death, right? Well, that's just the first death, <laughs> okay? Now, unless you are raised up in the first resurrection, you will face a second death. What's that bumper sticker? Somebody help me. Born, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. You with me? You understand? There's coming a second death for the wicked. And that second death, let me tell you, it's the lake of fire where people will be tormented forever and ever. You can read again about that in Revelation 21, verse 8. I'll read it for you. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Revelation 21, verse 8. Okay? That is the destiny of the wicked, the second death. So, your question specifically, is the second resurrection and the second death the same thing? And the answer is no. The second resurrection is when, at, at the great white throne judgment, God raises all of the dead who are left. Okay? So, that would be the wicked of all ages. Okay? And, in my mind, the righteous who lived during the millennial kingdom who died a first death. Okay? They'll all be raised up at that time and they will be judged, each one according to their deeds, as the scripture says. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, then he was thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Verse 15. Okay? So when you say the second Yes, I, I am not. I am not suggesting that there won't be any righteous there. There will be, in my mind, there'll be very few in number compared to the great host of wicked throughout all the ages. Okay. Oh, one question for the so for the second judgment, it will not include those who are. Um, are you saying this that it will not include those who were alive, Christians raised up before the thousand years? In other words, that's correct. Will we, will we stand before the judgment seat of Christ at this at this um, you know great white throne judgment? Or so or yeah, so so uh, at 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 the first resurrection, which in my mind is the rapture, it's the second coming of Christ. All of the righteous who have ever lived in all the ages of history are included in the dead in Christ. So, for example. I believe that people in the Old Testament were saved by grace through faith in Christ. Okay? And, and I believe that even Abel was saved that way. Even Adam was saved that way. Let's go all the way back. Right? Noah was saved that way. Abraham was saved that way. Moses was saved that way. There was no other way of salvation. They were all putting their faith in a Messiah who would come and deliver them from death. And as those... Those dispensations of time went on. God made clearer and clearer what his redemptive plan was. But when Christ came, he fulfilled it. He purchased 
right? Our salvation, not just our salvation, but the salvation of all the righteous dead in, in ages gone by. Would you agree? Or would you try to make an argument that they were saved some other way? <laughs> I mean, was, was a Jew in the Old Testament saved by works? Why not? Well, because he only failed uh, ten times a day <laughs> for all of his life. Are you with me? He, he broke the law just like we, we do, right? So here's what I'm saying. They were all looking forward to a Messiah who came and delivered them. We're all looking backward at a Messiah who came and delivered us. Okay, nevertheless, at the first resurrection, the dead in Christ, in my mind, includes all of the righteous dead from all the ages of history. The church of old, we call it. Oh, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I didn't. I'm sorry. Got it. The issue is, do all these Christians, us, will we stand at the great right throne judgment and participate Okay, yeah. You're asking specifically about the resurrection of the righteous and the judgment that takes place for them. True? Right. Which which you refer to as the Bema Seat judgment, which, of course, I, I would agree with. What happens is, the, at the first resurrection, there is a resurrection unto judgment. And all the believers of all the righteous throughout all the ages are going to stand before Christ and be judged. Okay? Now think about this. They're going to be judged according to what? According to their deeds. Okay? However, what they will not be judged for is what? Sins. Why? Jesus was judged for their sins. He bore our sins in his body on the tree and paid the debt in full. So what happens for the judgment of believers? Well, we get judged based on our service unto the Lord. And we get judged for a reward that God gives to us. Are you with me? So in other words, okay, if by God's grace you serve better and more faithfully than I do, your reward is going to be fatter. You understand? But you can't be judged for your sins. Listen, if you get judged for one sin, what's going to happen to you? The wages of sin is? And the death is? The lake of fire. Okay, you got it? You, you show up with one sin to stand before the Lord, and guess what? You got the wrong clothes on, fella. You're in big trouble. You with me? So what happens at the, the Bema Seat Judgment is Christians... And those of uh, the righteous dead of all the ages get judged based on their service to God for the purpose of rewards. For the purpose of rewards. Okay? And of course, that judgment is spoken of in various places in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, right? And 4. And Matthew 25 certainly uh, alludes to that, right? So you're saying we will not be at the great white throne judgment. I am saying we will not be there except as spectators. Okay. Yeah. So on your, on your timeline, it's like a different time. It's at, the, it's at your post-tribulation point or something like that, right? The first resurrection? The, first, the judgment that you're you describe. Yeah, the judgment obviously happens after the first resurrection. Right. Yes, at some course and point in time. There's a big controversy about that, man. Okay. Depends on who you read. Yeah, depends on who you read. Of course, post-millennialists have that view. So do all millennialists. And so do all pre-millennialists. They all believe there's going to be a judgment of believers. 
And they all put that sequence of events in different ways. So, for example, classic dispensationalism, what happens is the rapture happens before the tribulation, right here, and then we get caught up into heaven, and that's where the Bema Seat Judgment takes place. And then after the Bema Seat Judgment takes place, uh, there is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And all that's happening in heaven while the tribulation is going on on the earth. That's, that's uh, dispensational premillennialism. Pre-trib, that's their view of that. Okay? And so, again, depending on who you read, that sequence of events, the Bema Seat Judgment, the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, the Battle of Armageddon, all those things happen at different times in different, in different ways. You know? And so, um, but yeah, that's an important point. You know, what happens to the judgment of the righteous? Uh, we're out of time, so let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, we, we uh, praise you that you have given us such a tremendous and amazing hope as this. God, I pray that it would motivate us to preach the gospel to the lost. That, Lord, we would open up our mouth and speak of the way that men can be saved. That, Lord, we would be used as agents to call your people out of darkness and into the glorious kingdom of your dear Son. Father, help us to understand how significant our lives really are and how significant it is that we are the ministers of reconciliation, that we are your priests, and that we mediate between God and men through the gospel. We bring the mediator to them. God, help us to open up our mouth and speak of the way of salvation so that men can be saved, even your elect number. (coughs) Father, we thank you for the privilege of having this knowledge I pray that it would stir our hearts and that, God, it would stir up a zeal within us to be faithful and wise servants in your kingdom. We honor you and we bless you in view of Jesus' holy coming. Amen.